If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times. Facts of Assertions. From the Institute of Art and Ideas. We examine every aspect of contemporary thinking. What is love? Is it real? Is democracy illusory and incoherent? Finding cracks in the way we understand the world. I think there is a crisis of values. Realism has failed. We debate the way forward with today's leading thinkers. We're all trying to understand what the hell is going on. A live podcast production from the Institute of Art and Ideas. Our topic this afternoon is language and the world, and this is a topic which has puzzled uh, philosophers and many others, of course, uh, linguists and so on, for really since the beginning of human thought. And that, of course, is one of the questions, one of the topics. What is the relationship between thought and language? Is it the case that, for example, uh, non-linguistic creatures cannot have thoughts or cannot have certain thoughts? But then more generally, uh, to what extent is our experience of the world mediated by language such that we couldn't have the experience that we have without language? First of all, uh, Corinne Besson is director of the Centre for Logic and Language at the Institute of Philosophy and lectures in philosophy at the University of Sussex. Nancy Cartwright is a mathematician turned philosopher, Hilary Lawson. He is the director of the IAI, the Institute of Art and Ideas, and of the How the Light Gets In. Corinne, say something about... I do think that language describes the world. There are many things language does. It's not the only thing. It's just one of the uses of language. We also use it to communicate and to do various other things. But representing or describing the world is one of the key features or uh, uses of uh, language. I think it's one of its fundamental property that we can use language to describe the world. Obviously, to have a full debate, we will have to be a bit clear about what we mean by the world. So by the world, it's not just the world of tables and chairs and you know, what's out there. It could be the world in your mind, what's going on inside uh, your head, or it could be perhaps, you know, the world of mathematics, so the world that is not concrete, just like objects out there. So typically in those debates, we think, okay, that's just the external concrete world. I think language can describe the world, and I'm a bit more generous about what I'm perhaps happy to include in that expression, the world. The question then is, how does language succeed or manage to describe the world? So I think it does it by representing the world. Language gives us a representation of the world. And of course, the further question is, you know, how or what it means for the language to 
represent. Many things do represent. Pictures represent the, the world. Some graphs can represent aspects of the world. Maybe the um, thing that indicates how much gas you have in your gas tank in your car, you know, indicates something or represents something about the world. So there are many ways of representing. There are many things that can represent. So what is the very way in which language represents? I think that, and I'm going to give a very traditional answer here, I think it's through the notion of reference. We have words, we have huge lexicon, and we can use these words to pick out things in the world. So I can use, to, to take very mundane example, my name to pick out myself, the word table to pick out the table, and the word wall to pick out the Wall. So it's because we can use words to refer to things that we can represent using language, the world outside us and also inside us. So the notion of reference, I take it to be the fundamental notion that helps us understand how language puts us in contact with the world and enables us to represent it. Um, Nancy Cartwright. Well, there's a picture of the relation between language and the world that's suggested by Corinne's mention of reference. It's a picture that I can understand, and it's one I can explain to you. It's the only one that I think is intelligible, and yet it's obviously not right. <laughs> so I'm just going to raise that. It's the one that Wittgenstein taught about in his uh, early work, the Tractatus. And the uh, Wittgenstein imagines, so one thing is to understand the relation of language and the world involves both a story about language and a story about what the world is like. So Wittgenstein thought in the Tractatus of the world as consisting of facts. And here's what a fact is. There are a lot of objects, some large, large, large number of objects. And then there are properties. We don't know what the objects are that have the properties, know what the properties are, but they're objects and they have properties. You might think the ball is red or the wall has a picture on it. <laughs> so there are, there are objects and there are properties. And what happens is that there's a variety of properties that the objects can take on or not. And what the world is, really consists in are facts, which just are all the properties that all the objects have. So language, when we use it successfully and state descriptive truths, well, what happens ideally is that for each of those objects or each of the ones we want to talk about, we have a name. We name each of the objects. We have a representation. So we name the ball Bob uh, and we have a representation of the property red. We maybe R-E-D. <laughs> and then what happens is we concatenate in some way in our language, like by putting the word is in between or just uh, the nice descriptive thing he had was you actually just put the two things you put R of B, right? And that's us asserting the ball is red. And that's true just in case, well, the thing that B refers to, that ball, Bob, actually has the property red. Now, th that story is a story you can tell. And if you look at the kind of fields that I've been working in, uh, mathematic, where mathematics plays, in science, mathematics plays a big role as in, um, say, physics or economics, you might even think that that story made sense because what happens in these fields is you get these equations, they have variables in them, and they seem to have objects to which they assign the variables. The variables represent properties. They could be economics, they could be age or employment status, income, father's income, and the individuals might be your neighbor, etc. And there you have this simple 
tractarian world, similarly in physics. Right? So you have quantum physics and you have quantum states, and there are systems, the quantum systems that are supposed to have the quantum states. In these mathematical fields, you could come to believe that the world was the way the Tractatus said, and our language worked the way the Tractatus said. But when you actually think about the real world around us, where are these kind of bare objects and which properties are there? Did God really lay out a set of properties? You know, there are going to be these thousand and two objects and then exactly these properties and, you know, you either have one of the colors or you don't, you have one of the shapes or you don't. That's just not the way the world looks to us. It's not the way we use our language. On the other hand, what story can one tell alternatively, and I think, for instance, Hillary's got a story, but I don't believe his story either. Hillary, yes, could you come in on, the, on that thought? I'm going to argue that language doesn't describe the world. I don't think it's a mirror of the world. I don't think it refers to the world. I don't think it does any of those things. I think language is a metaphor for the world. It is a tool which enables us to intervene in the world, but I don't think that it, is, it does this mirroring or reference. And indeed, for the last hundred years, philosophers have tried to provide a, an account of how language hooks onto the world, and it would be my case that this has been a failure. I don't think we have a decent theory of how it hooks onto the world, nor do I think there is any likelihood of any such theory being about to appear, and that's because I don't think it does hook onto the world because there aren't things out there for it to hook onto. You know, Wittgenstein originally put forward, I think, the best account of a realist version of how language refers to the world, and he concluded at the end of the Tractatus that it's not possible to do. So what is going on then? I mean, in, in what sense is it possible for language to be a, a metaphor for the world? Well, I think that the idea that the world is somehow already divided into lots of little bits, God has already divided these bits and we've only got those bits to choose from, seems to me to be an implausible notion. We, first of all, can't find any of these bits because everything we look at turns out to be something else, no matter what, what it is. You know, if we take the example of a tree, is it, is it a tree or is it a house? And a house for all of the things that are living in the tree. Is it a biological material? Is it a form of vegetation? Is it a part of the environment? Is it molecules and so forth? There's no way we can find the, the sort of ultimate bit that all of these things are somehow descriptions of. So I think what I would want you to do is, in, as far as the world is concerned, I can't tell you what it is, because of course I'm stuck with language like everyone else, but I'd like to encourage you to think of it as just being open. Just, just think of the world as being open. It has the potential to be things. And I think those things are a result of our process of closure. I think we hold the openness of the world as things through language, and that as we hold them as things, we're then able to refine them and make them better. Now, I'm not saying as a result of this, and some of my critics pose me as a sort of caricature of a philosopher, so I, as if I'm suggesting that there isn't anything out there, or that our metaphors are free-spinning, there's no constraint. There's not only a whole lot of stuff out there. In a way, I want to say what's out there is so much more than realists imagine is out there. And it's, they're not free-spinning. I can't come up with any old metaphor uh, that I happen to fancy and then uh, you get it to work for you. I've got to do some work to show you how you might be able to use that metaphor and how you might be able to employ it. Nancy, you don't think that that's correct. Why don't you think it's, it's correct? It's not that I think it's not correct. I just want to point out that 
Hillary's ducked the question about what's the relation between language and the world. He's talked almost entirely about language in an interesting and exciting and imaginative way. It gives us new ideas and new ways to think about language. But I still am interested in what's the relationship between language and the world, and using the metaphor of it's a metaphor is not very helpful, and being told that it's open isn't very helpful, and being told also that there are an infinite number of ways it could be, or ways we could describe it, or ways we could close it, it's not very helpful. And that this is the kind of thing that 20 years ago there were science wars, where there were a lot of sociologists of science and philosophers of science who talked about so the scientific concepts being social constructions. And they kept saying, well, yes, I mean, they're not ones that mirror the world. Uh, we make them up for various reasons. They do certain jobs for us. They help us get around. They help us get Nobel Prizes. And they, those people always, though, had to keep saying something Hillary said, which is, oh, well, yes, but of course the world pushes back. You can't just make up anything. What's always puzzled me when I have to talk to my students, and I want to try to be honest, is I just don't have, I don't think we have any coherent picture, or I mean, even a very vague one, but that, that would make sense about what could the world be like if it's not this tractarian way, that it puts constraints on the way in which we can engage with it, the way even if our descriptions aren't true, and the way we use our descriptions to predict what will happen if we do things which we describe in a certain way. So it's, it's rather that I'm still back with the, my initial claim that there's one story I can tell about what the world might be like and what that language might be like that would make sense of how we use it and how we get around with it and what, why we're able to predict as well as we can and intervene as well as we can and convey information. And it, if it's not right, I agree it's not right, but I still think that we need a richer story about the other side of the divide. I think there are two things that the audience are likely to think are, are very important here. One is the difference between different types of discourse, because I think lots of people might feel that, say, with ethical or political discourse, notions of invention or metaphor and so on, openness are more in place than with tables and chairs. You know, we have a, have a sort of very basic kind of intuition that there are tables and chairs that have maybe moral properties as, as something else. The other thing, of course, is the question of truth, because uh, traditionally philosophers like to think, and very much the, the, the sort of correspondence notion of, of language, is that the, our language could latch onto the world and tell us the truth. I would like to say so, something about metaphors. So if I understand you well, and the, the thing you said about the tree and the house, so language is metaphors throughout, right? Usually when people think about metaphor, about why something is a metaphor, they typically presuppose a non-metaphorical use of language, right? So it's a, you know, you say Juliet is the sun, right? Uh, that's a metaphor. Of course, Juliet is not identical with the sun. Uh, what we are doing is using, you know, the literal meaning to get a, a new kind of meaning, which, you know, ascribing some property to Juliet of shining or being beautiful or what have you. But I find it hard, this idea of met metaphors throughout, because it, you have to get this business started. And, and usually when we, the way we get the business of metaphors started is by you know, saying, OK, here is what we mean by Juliet and what we mean by the sun, and let's pervert that. Okay. So, so I didn't understand the status of the claim that there isn't a world out there that is, if you wish, carved out already. Some scientists might 
we're bound to agree, right? Uh, that, you know, what is the fundamental structure of the world? You know, that's that's hard, and people disagree. And maybe you know, this this picture of trees, tables, and that's that has to go. But I didn't think that your the way you were coming into this sort of skepticism about the world out there that just we latch onto through language came at all from that corner. Uh, and then I'm not sure I understand the status of the claim. Or is, it, is it just a given? Is it just, or maybe I didn't get the argument. So I, I, w I would like to push you a bit more. Concerning truth and morality, so here we want to know whether language can at all describe the world. Obviously, there are many uses of language. You know, if I say slavery is wrong, maybe there is no uh, fact in the world about wrongness that would make that claim true. It would have been to be a different story that explains, you know. Uh, so should we think there, for example, in terms of metaphor? Is the notion of metaphor, do you think, useful? I mean, that, that's, it might fit in very well with the thought that, you know, a particular, there's an invention of a way of looking at things. Would that be um, plausible in your view? I don't understand enough about the ideology of metaphor to uh, accept that. But I would say that, I mean, I personally think that, you know, slavery is wrong. That's true. That's actually a true claim about the world. But I'm a m in a very small minority there. But there would be other ways to account for that, perhaps in terms of you know subjective matters and all that. So I'm not sure I'm buying into this metaphorical idea. But it's true that the issue would be settled between us if we can even agree on one claim <laughs> that <laughs> would manage to describe reality. And that so yeah, there's a lot about language that is just not about describing. Yeah. I entirely, of course, appreciate Nancy's motivation of wanting to say, well, come on, you know, uh, don't we still want to say what, what, what is out there? Uh, and I sort of accept her point that I, I didn't say anything about what was out there. F we don't have to know, but I'd like to have yeah. a coherent story, yeah. one story yeah. or another. Yeah. Yeah. So I was impressed with Wittgenstein's Tractatus, but I was also convinced by his argument of the failure. And his solution in the investigations was to avoid talking about the relationship between language and the world at all. He just said, you've got to give up on all of this stuff. I think that's also not a viable position, because I think the only way that we understand the investigations is to impute a view to Wittgenstein about what he's doing, namely he's wandering around in a language game, which is a general metaphysical sort of picture of what he's really up to. And without that, you've got no idea what's going on. So I think <coughs> Wittgenstein, I don't think, does escape metaphysics. And so my uh, starting point was we have to face this sort of self-referential problem that besets uh, a realist account of, of language and come up with an alternative which does account for how we are able to intervene. And uh, I started, I think, from the, what seems to be an absurd uh, stance that the world is nothing uh, in particular. And initially, I was tempted to try and describe it as full and dense and full of potential and all of those sorts of things. But I, I, of course, I, I'm now rather more careful of this because they're, they're, just, uh, they're just new forms of closure. So I would say into Nancy's overall thing, well, Hillary, don't we want to say something about the world? I would say we can say all sorts of things about how we might hold the world and we should have a really good go. So in proposing the account that I've given, I want it to be scientific in the sense of actually you can use it to do stuff. But I think that any way that we hold what is out there is a function of the underlying process of closure, which is the way that metaphors function. Let me give you another metaphor for the relationship I'm describing, which is flags and the wind. So 
Imagine you were in a situation in which you saw that you used the flags to determine what was going on in the wind. Imagine, imagine we, you were in an underground bunker. You couldn't, you couldn't access the wind at all. You'd never access the wind at all. All you saw were the flags. Now, the flags, looking at the flags, might enable you to do things. They would help you fly an aircraft. They uh, might help you to predict how the flags are going to change in the future and sort of determine what, the we what we call the weather might be. But you'd never be able to get at the wind. It wouldn't matter how much you looked at the flags or how much you looked at the response, you'd never get at the wind. And it seems to me that is the nature of our senses and that is the nature of our language, that we can never get at what is causing them, but we are able to use them to be able to intervene. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.TV for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Could, so could, could we perhaps address briefly this, I know it's a huge topic of course, but the question of truth, because because obviously one of the reasons philosophers have wanted a, a theory of language is to, is to underwrite certain truth claims about yeah. the way the world is, you know, that this is a take that might, you know, the, my claim about there being a table here is made true in virtue of the fact that there is a table here. So I wonder, Corinne, if you could say something uh, uh, about that in the context of how you see language working in that way. So a, na a natural view is to think that we can make true claims and we, ca we can make false claims, right? So, you know, we could have arguments about what are the true claims, what are the false claims that you and or I can make. So it seems that we often evaluate what we say, what other people say, as true or false. And my sense is that when you know, we do that, when I say, well, what you just said is false, what I'm saying is it doesn't fit the way the world is. Right? So you can talk about correspondence if you wish. It just doesn't fit. The world is different, so what you say, that's just not going to be true, that's false. So the natural way you can explain truth and falsity on picture where you know, there is language, there is the world, and you can use language to describe the world is that we can make true claim and false claims, and what explains the truth and falsity is in part the way the world is. Let's move on to our, uh, an another topic that we have, which is the idea of a world without language. Can we make sense of um, what uh, the experience of the world will be? How do we understand, for example, the experience of animals who, who have no language? Or should we think of them as having a language in, in their response? The, I'm thinking partly of a, there's a passage in Heidegger where he says that when we say the lizard is sitting on the rock, we should cross out the word rock because the lizard can't have a concept of being on a rock. That's our concept. So whatever it is that the lizard is experiencing is, is not our experience of the way the world is. Would you agree with that or would you agree disagree? Well, I've just been to a lecture by Dame Henrietta Moore, who spoke eloquently about all the m recent research on how all sorts of animals that we didn't think and insects we didn't understand are engaging in social activities and communicating with each other. And uh, she described a vine that grows through the jungle and it 
without touching any of the leaves. The same vine going from tree to tree will grow leaves that look like this tree and at the same time have leaves here. And what is it sensing uh, that uh, allows it to behave in this social way uh, with interaction. Well, if, if Henrietta were here, <laughs> I'm sure she could convince you that w without language, these, uh, the rest of the world, including the trees and the vines and the glaciers, have kind of social interactions that look very much like genuine social interactions where there's communication going on and whether they have concepts or not, they don't have brains. Uh, on the um, roots, there might be a million little bits that are like brains, so that perhaps they do it differently. I think it's again like the problem of trying to reconstruct from our language some story about what the world might be like. How do we reconstruct from our observations of what the animals and the bees and the vine are doing? How do we construct some story about what they're doing and we of course anthropomorphize and have to talk in terms of concept and language but at any rate uh, it seems to me that there is a at least a point of view in which they're very social and communicate and if we then think you can't do that without language we probably ought to rethink our views about language. Yeah. And, and could you, Corinne, say something about that all, in the context of, I mean, Hillary has suggested that language is uh, crucial in our experience of the world uh, in this way. Would you go along with that at least to some extent? I do want to react to this idea that of Heidegger that, um, what is it, the lizard? The lizard on the rock, yes. yes. I, find it, I find that remark very odd that, you know, because, because the lizard doesn't have the concept of a rock, you can't just talk about... I mean, we're not attributing any concept to that lizard, we're just, you know, I mean, a lot of people have children and they constantly, you know, uh, talk about their babies being, I don't know, uh, playing with the iPad and probably the child doesn't have a concept of an iPad. Does that make it, like, impossible for us to... So but I guess the thought underlying, underlying it is, wh what is, you know, the famous Thomas Nagel paper, what is it like to be a bat? There must be something it's like to be the lizard on the rock, but yeah. whatever it is isn't yeah. captured adequately but by our... We're just saying the lizard is on the rock. We're not trying to describe the, the lizard's inner life. We're just trying to describe what's objectively the case. Well, I think Heidegger did think he was trying to describe <laughs> or oh, trying to get okay. at that. That, well, that was the worry. Henry, yes, could you come in on, the, on that thought? So I, I don't think that we are able to identify false claims. Uh, I think the very notion that you can uh, have true and false claims straightforwardly is, uh, is not right. For, for, for example, you, know, if I say, you might think, well, there are some obviously false claims here. I mean, London is not the capital of France. So I just have to give you a circumstance in which you can close this metaphor. And imagine a, imagine a collection of bankers and they're being addressed by somebody at the beginning of a lecture, and I say, I say to you, gentlemen uh, and ladies, this is uh, that London is the capital of France because the financial institutions of London determine the way that the economy of France operates. And you've then been able to realize that closure. So now you can hold the world as London is the capital of France. You can all do it. You may, not, you may not find it powerful. You may say, actually, I don't think it's quite right. I, I think I wouldn't quite want to hold it like that. But you, you, are, you see what the nature of the metaphor is, and maybe you will find it powerful. 
And I would argue that any, any example of a supposedly straightforwardly false claim, we just have to think imaginatively about how we could hold the world like that and get it to work. And of course, I accept that sometimes we have to build a very, very complex structure in order to be able to explain why we are still able to hold on to this. I mean, Feyerabend has shown in the context of, of, of the history of science that the Aristotelian framework for being able to predict where the planets was was exceptionally good and just as good as the Copernican version uh, for at least 200 years after it was uh, determined. And there's every reason to believe that um, if you operated with the Aristotelian system, you could, with enough tinkering and playing with it, even account for the way of the motions of Mercury. It's not to do with somehow the stuff out there is a certain way and we have to discover the answer. What we do is we refine our metaphors and through the refining of our metaphors, we're, we're able to get better and better engagement. So this is just the standard philosopher's response, yeah. picking up on some mm. things about reference. Or why shouldn't I say that what you've used is the same sentence that someone else might be using when you say London is the capital of France, but you haven't made the same claim. And of course, it's standard part of uh, one standard kind of philosophy of language that what claim one is making using words will depend very much on the context and the beliefs of the interlocutors. And in this context, uh, or when I'm talking to my seven-year-old granddaughter, then the reference of London and the reference of capital, et cetera, et cetera, are fixed in a certain way, such that that is a false claim. You're fixing them using your metaphors, and in this new context, well, I would you're say making so the standard response is, you're talking about the same sentence, not about the same claim. And I would say to that, well, you've just embedded the idea of the possibility of reference in the word claim so that you make it look as if yes. that you can be precise with your meaning and we can be specific about the meaning sufficiently enough to say that when I was saying London was the capital of France, actually what I was claiming and then a rather more long elongated description, which would be the actual true description of what I was really trying to say. But I don't think that is the case. There is no way that you can formulate language in order to be able to determine these claims. The, the, the claims re require language to have some sort of precise reference in order order to be able to distinguish one claim from another, and I don't think that you can do that. I'm always, any claim you show me, I'm going to be able to find a way of saying, no, that's not what was going but, on. But this not, is, a, this is a different way of being able to hold it. That's not the case, though. In a particular context, with particular interlocutors doing a particular job, they, the claim ha can have a certain meaning, and it can, the terms yes. can have a certain reference. Yes. That doesn't mean that you can't then take Yes. A different context with different interlocutors yes. and do a different job, or even that you can actually change the context. I had in mind this particular context. You tell a richer story about it, yes. and you know the story I told so far about what the context is like. It wasn't the way it actually was with these very interlocutors no, I, at this I, I, space I, I, time. I, 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 I want to bring Corinne in, 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 in at this point, point just for a moment. Hilary, could I just bring Corinne yeah. yeah, in? Because this is all really Hillary's, uh, Hillary's uh, line of work here. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to say, I don't think in your disagreement, reference is necessarily key. The, the, the thing I would want to say is that there is something like the conventional meaning. This notion of metaphorical meaning you know, obviously you can turn saying yes into meaning no, right? I mean, if you, you can always contrive a context such that in the end, you know, when you said yes, you meant no. 
But it doesn't take away the fact that there is something like the conventional meaning of yes, which is assent, right? You can always contrive these situations, but we have things that we think are conventional meanings, and that's why that without a context, the claim that you know, London is the capital of France is initially surprising, right? It's because it doesn't accord with you know, conventions. I mean, conventions, you know, they're not cast in stone, so and so but that's so the one we do have. As, as with Nancy, I want to say, yes, metaphor is the core of languages, but they congeal and, 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 and they become literal. So the literal meaning, instead of starting with a literal meaning and thinking metaphor is somehow the elaboration on the outside, it's exactly the other way around. We start with a metaphorical meaning, and then it congeals as the result of it, uh, habitual use and there being agreement on how to close that metaphor. So what we mean by London, we in general have some sort of similar way of holding London, but I would want to argue, you look closely at any closure, you look at London, and we're not going to be able to find out what it is. We won't even be able to find the border, the edge of it. We won't be able to define it, because when we get in there, what will happen is we'll get back to the metaphorical character, the openness that is still there in the word, which we can't somehow keep a cap on. Okay, well, at that, at that who, who says, <laughs> who says <laughs> philosophers disagree with each other? We hope you enjoyed this podcast, brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. Which side of the debate did you fall on? Let us know by tweeting at IAI underscore TV, hashtag language in the world. If you're impressed by Nancy's arguments, watch her debate explaining the inexplicable on the IAI TV player. If you want to listen to more episodes, then subscribe to the Philosophy for Our Times podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or Stitcher for more big ideas on the go. We would love to hear your feedback, so please do email us on podcast at iai.tv. Tune in next week to hear mathematician and author Marcos de Sortoy explore what we cannot know. <laughs>